one of the things, uh, just as the year kind of gets ready to, to wind down, it was amazing to think during our 8.30 uh, time together to think that we're, we're less than a month away of saying goodbye to 2020. So, <clears throat> yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever had a year where I could have said that and people were like, yeah, let's get out of 2020. 2020 sucks. Okay. Um, so, at any rate, uh, it's almost done. And so, it's that time of year where we, we as a church, we start to look back at things that we've celebrated, which has been an interesting thing to do this year, uh, which we have some things that have been worthy of celebrating, and then, um, and then things we want to improve upon. And so as the year closes, a couple opportunities for you for year-end gifts. Uh, you can, one of the things that we do uh, for our bonuses for our staff during Christmas is we ask you to actually uh, do that for the staff. So if you feel led to give to the staff, just write staff in there, and that bonus gets spread amongst our staff. We don't, do, uh, we don't build that into our budget. We just let you kind of decide uh, on how to do that. And then um, there's opportunity on Angel Tree, which we have filled all 40 spots for Angel Tree, taking care of all the kids that were assigned to us. There's still an opportunity to give online there. That's in the newsletter and on the website if you want to do that. Scarlet Hope uh, is an organization in Reno that we're connected with. Uh, a group of gals basically uh, ministers to women in sex trafficking kind of areas, strip clubs and things like that. And they go in and they serve these ladies and they love them and they want to get them some gifts. And so uh, we're looking for $10 donations to give these gals some gifts. Obviously, I, I would love to see us be more generous than $10 a gal. But if you put that in the memo uh, of your check as well, we'll make sure that those uh, funds get used to purchase gifts for these ladies that need to be loved on with the love of Christ. Uh, and then Brad's going to briefly uh, share with you some other things that, that have come across our table on the outreach side of things uh, as the church so you can kind of know things that we've been doing behind the scenes. So, Brad, go ahead and tell everybody what we've been up to. If I haven't introduced myself, my name is Brad Noel. I'm the worship and outreach pastor here at the church. And, um, you know, we look at 2020 as, as the huge negative because of COVID. But in, in many ways, and even in small ways, um, God is still in the move. And he's still drawing people to him. Um, he loves people. And I wanted to share a couple things that we did on an outreach base this, this year. And I was reminded um, earlier in the year, if you remembered, we were, we were given like 10,000 eggs. Do you guys remember that? Um, but it, it seems that God has saw fit to continually give me uh, food to distribute to people. Um, so on top of that, we gave those 10,000 eggs away to various people in the community. And I, I could tell you the story of that. But um, God then... Uh, reached out with a grocery outlet, and they had been contacting us lately to kind of take their things that are going to be going um, off the shelf um, as far as not good anymore. They can't sell it. So they, they said, hey, can you use it? So Jim and I have been distributing a lot of those foods and things to our apartment complex over here to some of our friends. Jim Mathias is, is uh, the head of our art team, and um, he has been building relationships with many of these families that are over here. And um, to much of my surprise, I got to go with him, and, and they were very welcoming to say, yes, we, we need this. And on the heels of that, um, a friend of ours that, that comes to church here, his name is Roberto. He works for Squaw Creek um, Resort. And he called me up and said, we have 20 frozen turkeys that we want to donate to your church to give away. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we went door to door over here randomly and just knocked on doors and said, hey, we're from the church. We, we want to bless you this Thanksgiving. And some of these families were, like, awestruck, like, why why would you give me a frozen turkey? You don't even know me. Um, but it was some of those, those things like that that we were able to build those relationships, especially with some of the families that Jim has already done. Um, the last thing that, that kind of happened the past few weeks is I asked our children's church to write 
um, notes to our extended care. Um, if you don't know at the hospital, the extended care, there's about 20 individuals that are there that really haven't seen anybody in eight months, aside from nurses and doctors and maybe occasionally a, um, a family member. So I felt just on my heart like, hey, let's, let's reach out to them, write them some love notes. So our children's church did that. Well, in, in the midst of that, uh, my children go to Glenshire Elementary, and their teachers got wind of this, and they said, can we join in on that? So I had all these kids writing from all over the Truckee, from the, the district and stuff, just handing me letters. Like I took, I think, two or three. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Like, you know, just, just that our, our witness. And, and I think, um, I can't speak for the teachers and the staff at Glenshaw Elementary, but I love those, those, those friends that are there. And um, I've built some relationships with them. And the importance for you, I'm going to get all choked up with this, because it's about the family of God that we get out and we rub shoulders with people. And my kids' teachers wouldn't reach out to me on Facebook and say, can we be a part of that if they didn't trust me? And it's the same for you. Um, I went down this week. Awana collected a bunch of socks last week, and I had a couple bags of socks. And I went down to the, the Veterans Hall this past week and dropped them off to our local warming shelter. And, and Carol Anderson was down there, and she was ministering to the folks that were there and the director there kind of took me around to kind of check out some things and lo and behold I ended up coming into a conversation with Carol and two other ladies that were there being able to share the gospel and I wasn't even planning on sharing the gospel but to these non-believing folks that were there and whether they get saved now today or, or then the opportunity arose so the encouragement for you and me listen to the spirit of God as you leave here today as he knocks on your heart to go Put your arm around somebody to, to share, to write a note, to share the good news. That's ultimately the hope that lies within us. Don't be afraid to do that. God bless you guys. Thanks for pouring into our staff and being able to give us ministry opportunities like this. And I hope and pray that God will give us more in the future. Amen. Amen. Thanks. <clears throat> uh, turn to John chapter 8. Um, if you've been with us for any length of time, uh, you know that we have a high opinion of God's Word. We care about God's Word. We believe that it is uh, Him speaking to us, and we have a high value uh, for the preaching through of God's Word, and we choose typically, most of the time, books of the Bible that we teach through. Uh, we actually finished Exodus not that long ago, if you remember. It was a great journey. We've been in First Timothy, uh, and First Timothy has been a, a good book for me. Uh, I think it's been a good book for us as a church. It's been very healthy for our leadership, I think, to be in that book to help us really navigate what God's church is supposed to be. Uh, and, and obviously, several of you are here. Many of you are online. Uh, and you know that we, our leadership has made a stance that, that the church can't close its doors. The church needs to continue to be what the church is, that we can't turn people away, and that the church in no point in the history of the world has ever turned people away regardless of persecution, sickness, plague, or whatever it may be. It is our job to provide a place uh, where people can come and feel like they can be ministered to, that their souls can heal and be restored to Jesus, uh, that their relationship with God can be connected, and, and that community can occur for those to have the best mental health as possible, which we believe then flows into the body and the immune system and all of those different Things we also recognize that our nation, uh, by and large, has had a history of allowing us as people to make decisions uh, of what risk we will or will not take. 
Uh, and so we uh, are here, and we're glad to have you, and we love you, and we are continuing to uh, stand on God's Word and stand on what we believe Jesus as the church is supposed to be. So, thank you. <clears throat> Appreciate it. Um, and then uh, for this season, we're in Advent season. So we're going to take a break from Timothy, and we're going to take time uh, to celebrate Advent in the Christian calendar, which Advent, if you don't know what Advent is, Advent is a season in which we practice uh, the anticipation and, and the wonder and the worship and the adoration of Jesus that our forefathers spent as well. There was a time where the prophets, they anticipated, they advented, if you will, uh, they were waiting for the coming of Jesus. They were looking for the star to appear. When it appeared, we know they, they went and they worshiped him and they gave him the gifts that he uh, deserved. And likewise, we are celebrating in this season a time of anticipation. So we celebrate uh, in the past and that Jesus has come. Amen. The, the Father has sent the Son on our behalf. And, and so we celebrate what has already occurred at the same time as we watch the calendar and, and we wait. We're sharing an anticipation of the reality that Jesus is coming back again, that he's coming back for his people. 2020 uh, has been that year where I'm like, now would be nice, right? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, there's an anticipation. And, and so we spend a, a period of time in the Christian calendar to do this. And it's more than one day. It's usually four weeks. Uh, if we are being completely correct, it actually was last week. Uh, but we've, we're, you know, we're celebrating it in our own unique way. Nothing wrong with that. We're still anticipating. Uh, I don't know how many of you have set up your Christmas tree yet. Any, any takers? Uh, those of you online, you can maybe interact and share. Yeah, put the Christmas tree up. Uh, before Thanksgiving, my wife told me we had to put the Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving, uh, which I always thought was kind of a stupid thing to do. Um, but when your wife tells you to do something, you listen because that's, that's a smart, wise, biblical thing to tell your people, as well as to tell yourself, right? Well, then I saw an article that said uh, that uh, if you set up your tree earlier, uh, it'll help increase endorphins, make you feel good, and they encourage you to do it. And so I thought, my wife's telling me, culture's telling me, Jesus wants me to do it. Okay, I put it up. And, and so the, the, there's this, this tree in our in our uh, living room, and it's got light on it, and, and it reminds us of the, the light of the world. It reminds us of Jesus, and, and it reminds us that we need to celebrate not just for a day, but many days. An old creed actually says of the incarnation of God, Jesus in flesh, uh, that for us, uh, this salvation, it's too big of a thing uh, to appreciate in just one day. Indeed, it's something we'll celebrate for all eternity. Uh, and so we're going to celebrate, and what we're going to do, what we've decided to do uh, through our leadership and our elders and pastors and praying through, you know, we kind of try to find a theme that we can connect with. I'm not sure if you've noticed what the theme might be, uh, but it's I am, okay? Uh, and so uh, I just have to, again, as, as we do on a periodic basis, just celebrate the gifting that God has given our church uh, for artists like Jim Mathias uh, and Derek, who has helped paint and design all of these things uh, and, and there's six of the uh, I am's in this room. There's seven total in the book of John. There's six in the room. The seventh is when you first came in. If you look at that painting, it actually has uh, real gold leaflets in there. And so Jim figured out uh, how to put this gold in there. And so there's real gold in that picture. Please don't steal it. Um, in fact, there's, uh, there's kind of a debate in the office right now of what staff member is going to get the painting when the series is done. And so we're going to do a cage match at the end of January. For, and I'm, I'm, 
I'm, I think I'm going to win it. Um, <clears throat> and, and so uh, uh, that's where we're at. We're with the I am's. And, and what's that? Your money's on Brad? I'm a little faster than that. <laughs> Dodge and weave enough. He'll get tired and sweaty. I'll take him. Um, so let me just, just describe for you here. Uh, uh, really, let me tie this in, okay, for all of us and connecting with the I am, because the I am is a major statement. It's a huge statement. It's, it's a radical statement. It's the explosive statement. Uh, let me just ask you a question. How self-aware are you? I think we all like to think that we're self-aware, uh, meaning that you know who you are. You, you, you know what you're good at. You know what you're bad at. You know what you love. You know what you don't love. You know what you like, and you know what you dislike. Now, I remember in my 20s, I thought I knew, uh, well, I thought I knew everything, Right? And, and the reality now at 42, as I recognize at 20, I might as well have been an infant. Like, I should have never been let out into the wild at 20 years old. Like, there's no way I should have been living in the world on my own. And yet I was. And I made a lot of mistakes. And I thought, I thought what I liked was what I liked. And, and, and now at 42, uh, I recognize certain things that I didn't recognize then. And, and, and the reality is I don't think I really knew what I liked and what I didn't like until probably somewhere between the ages of 33 and 35. Uh, like really like a, a true understanding of like knowing my weaknesses, uh, knowing my strengths, and then knowing my sins and, and knowing my dislikes and likes. Now at 42, I, I find myself uh, barely wanting ever at a certain, you know, when you go to a restaurant to order anything different, right? I know what I like. I don't want to order the, the special. I want to order the thing I've always ordered for the last 10 years. And, and so uh, just, you know, who are you? What's your identity? Now, culture, culture will kind of tell you that your identity is wrapped up in a lot of different things, okay? Culture will tell you that, that you, your identity is somewhat attached to what kind of clothing you wear, or your identity is in, in the recreation that you are part of. You know, you're a snowboarder or you're a skier. Uh, your identity might even be wrapped up in the kind of phone you have. You're an Android person. You're an iPhone person. We've even attached our identity to the kind of car we drive, right? We, we really have. Uh, you'll never catch me driving a Prius. It's not going to happen because that's not my identity. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but we attach our identity to this stuff. Oftentimes, if someone says, you know, who are you? Who are you? You might respond with, well, I'm a doctor, or I'm a nurse, or I'm a contractor, or whatever it might be. None of those things are actually who you are. And if you remember in the I am statements, this goes all the way back when we were in Exodus, early on when Moses, who's standing before God, Moses who, who now is, is in proximity to God to a degree that is quite dangerous for him, and he's there stuttering, and he's not very good at speech, and he has to go back by the commandment of God to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to free to free his people, to free God's people, that the Jews would no longer be slaves to Pharaoh, but that they would be free. And so Moses is kind of panicked, and he says, well, when I go, that's where he's at. Who do I say sent me? And God responds. He gives Moses his name, that he's this beautiful God that is long-suffering and patient and kind. But he says, when you go, you tell them, I am has sent me. I am. This statement is just packed with meaning and, and beautiful nuance, but it's God letting us know who he is. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. There's something in his name. He's telling us what his identity is. He's telling us who he is. It's a big deal. 
It's such a big deal that, that, that the Jews literally took this name Yahweh in which we derive this statement, I am, and, and, and they wouldn't even put the vowels. When they wrote it down, they wouldn't even put the vowels of the name on a piece of paper or parchment. Because God is, is holy. I mean, this I am statement tells us that, that, that God has no beginning and no end. That he is the creator, he's not been created. That he is the ultimate reality and truth. That he depends on actually nothing. That he is the source of life. That everything that is not God is dependent on his grace to exist. All that is not God is actually very small. That he's consistent, the same today, yesterday, forever. There's no shift or shadow in him. He's fully trustworthy. Whatever he does is right, and it's beautiful. This makes God the most important, the most valuable reality and person in the universe. He is more worthy of our interest and our attention and our admiration and enjoyment than all other realities, including the entire universe. It tells us something magnificent about God. One author actually says in regards to this reality of the I am that God is, that it is a cosmic outrage billions of times over that God is ignored, treated as negligible, questioned, criticized, treated as virtually nothing, and given less thought than the carpet in your own house. Let me ask you a question here. Let me kind of dive in and dig into your life. A little bit deeper. In a moment, we're going to talk about how he is the light of the world and the bread of life. Those are the two I am statements that I'll be focusing on for this particular Advent Sunday. What do you hunger for? What do you long to see? See, this is important in regards to our identity because uh, all of us have an issue, and that issue is that all of us have a tendency to worship something other than Jesus. All of us are guilty of that. One of the things that has happened in my life as I've grown in my walk with the Lord is that I've become more aware of those things that are idols in my life. Now, idol worship is one of those things that we really, uh, you know, we really don't know what to do with it unless we've studied it enough and really looked at it with some nuance and what it means for us today. Because oftentimes we look at an idol and we think, we think in the Old Testament that's the golden calf. We think we don't, we don't worship idols. We don't worship false things. We don't have statues. But that's not what idol worship is. See, idol worship is taking anything other than God or using anything other than God to fix or at least alleviate some kind of negative symptom in your life. Let's just take depression or anxiety or frustration or anger, whatever those things may be. Those things are to be satisfied and filled and fixed within Jesus, the I am of Jesus, because he's the all in all. He's everything. He's the all truth. That's his identity. And so we have a tendency, instead of running to Jesus, uh, that, that, that during these hard seasons like COVID, we run to things like Netflix binging, or maybe social media to distract ourselves, or some kind of substance abuse, whether that is alcohol or, or food, whatever that thing may be, that is an idol. You know what your idols are by, by just knowing what you dream about, what you long for, what you wish for, what you distract yourself with. I've shared with you before, I have a tendency sometimes to just kind of see what kind of sales are on Amazon. That distracts me. Not only does it distract me when I look at it, it it distracts me when I order it, and then it distracts me for the period of time before I get it because it's going to come in two days, unless you have the truck U.S. postal system, that will be five to seven. (laughs) And then you finally get it. There's this small little taste of satisfaction only for that cycle to go over and over again. So Jesus in the passage, Rad, if you would turn to John chapter 8, I want you to go to verse 12. 
And I know I'm a little bit farther into the message than normal when we do this, but we, as I mentioned, we love God's word. And so if you're home or you're with us this morning, would you please stand with me as we honor the spoken word of our holy God speaking to his holy church. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from. See, he knows who he is. He knows his identity. I know where I am going. But you, you don't know where I come from or from where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, Jesus, we trust that your identity will flow into us this morning and do a work that we cannot do on our own. In Jesus' name, your church said, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so context is always everything. So first of all, on the, the, the beginning of this passage is really beautiful and unique because Jesus has literally, literally just walked through this, this thing where the Pharisees have grabbed a woman who has committed adultery with a man that is not her husband. And the Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus and they try to trap him and they basically show that this woman's identity is in her sin and that she should be punished by death and stoning. That's this woman's identity from the Pharisees. The Pharisees feel they are righteous. Jesus stands in that moment knowing who he is, knowing where he's going, knowing where he has come from. And he says, he who has no sin cast the first stone. He goes right to the straight, straight to the heart of the identity of these men. We know he wrote something in the ground. I'm not going to get into all that this morning. I don't have time, but he points back at their identity. You are no better than she is. And then he ends up in this place where he heals her, he reconciles her, he doesn't condemn her, tells her to sin no more. And then he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus was probably teaching this at the temple. Right where he would have been teaching this would have been two giant candelabras. Do you remember this from from Exodus? These giant lampstands that commemorated God leading his people out of the wilderness, out of darkness, and into his presence and protection. The visual probably would have been quite stunning. Not only stunning, but shocking, especially to the Pharisees, because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the Yahweh. You know, the, the, the most holy and high God. I am he. I am the light of the world. And he's letting us know that in order for us to, to really know him, we have to recognize him as the light. Look at what Jesus says after that. It's, it's, I think, a very strong statement in addition to the Yahweh one. I am the light of the world. Whoever what? Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness. Now, this word follows, if you haven't noticed on any of our literature or on the wall, is a big deal to us as a church, right? We don't follow a pastor. We don't follow a denomination. We follow Jesus. We emphasize Jesus and the gospel of grace, that we're saved by Jesus. What Jesus is ultimately saying about being the light of the world is that unless we're following him, we will walk in darkness. That's the statement. 
Now, here's the beautiful thing about the light of the world, right? Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus turning on the light. First of all, the Christmas tree, right? It doesn't turn on unless you plug it in. This is what Jesus is saying. You're not going to get the light unless you plug into me. You've got to plug in and you've got to follow me. And what's really beautiful about light is darkness flees from light. Darkness never overcomes light, does it? As soon as you turn the light on, it shines, the darkness flees, it runs, and we need this light. We need to be plugged in to Jesus lest we be in darkness. And the first thing that happens is this. First of all, take note of the text. I know we don't have time to get into all all here because I've I've also got to talk about the bread of life. But these Pharisees are arguing with Jesus. They're saying that he's lying, that he's a blasphemer, that his testimony isn't true. They're unbelievers. Jesus continues to share this message of light and go down, if you will, to verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. You know why this is really cool? Jesus' sermons are always a lot shorter than Jesse's, first of all. Take notice of that. His is verses 12 through 29. And while he's preaching, people have walked up to this temple as non-believers. Not just non-believers, but they're contentious against Jesus. They're, they're, They're borderline violent against Jesus. This one statement of him saying that he is the I am is sufficient enough for the Jews to want to kill him. Just this statement alone is enough for them to want to kill Jesus. And yet, after his sermon, those who walked into the temple as unbelievers, the good news is they walked out of the room as believers. That's, that's amazing. And that's good news because if you walked in this morning or you're tuned in online this morning and you're a non-believer, by the end of the message, you might be saved. So don't turn it off yet because the light of the world is going to turn on. And what happens if you're like me, when that light gets turned on at salvation, you start to see the world differently. And then the beautiful thing is, is, is not only does that light get turned on now, it's a continual thing. Follow me, he says, for the light to be there. Think of it this way. If you come to my house and, and, and you're invited over, if you're not even invited over, you knock on the door, uh, the way our house is set up, when you walk in, the first room you're going to walk in is the living room. The light's on. Right? The light is on. If you start to get to know us a little bit more and, and, and we become closer as friends, we might turn the light on in the dining room, have a meal together. A, a little farther back in our house, we have a reading room. You want to study and get a little bit more intimate, have a cup of coffee, that light would get turned on. One of the places you may never see in my house, though, is the master bedroom. That light probably be off for you. You're definitely not going to the master bathroom, that's for sure. That light's off. Why do I mention that? Because in your relationship with Jesus, as it's ongoing, when you become a a Christian, a follower of Christ, there comes this moment where you're in the living room with Jesus. But then all of a sudden, Jesus wants to sit down at the table with you and have a meal. Jesus wants to go into the reading room, and he wants to study, and he wants to, to get to know you a little bit more. And if you remember all the way back in Exodus with the tabernacle, eventually Jesus wants to be in your bedroom. He wants to be with you in every single room. And see, as you grow in Christ, you're willing to let Jesus turn the light on in each intimate level of your space. Hopefully you understand I'm speaking metaphorically of your heart. As you allow him to dwell within your heart, there's things that that at first you're willing to show Jesus. And, And you know what? Jesus is so kind and compassionate, isn't he? Because when you first come to know him, he's like, let's just hang out in the living room. And you might be one of those radical people you first get saved. You're like, let's go to the bedroom right now. And he's like, slow down. 
We're just going to deal with the living room. And you turn the light on and you notice, you know, Jesus starts talking to you about what goes on in the living room and, and what kind of things need to be cleaned up. When the light gets turned on, you see the dirty spots. And then you go into the kitchen and then, and then as you grow in your faith, eventually you're in that most intimate place and, and the light gets turned on and you see the dirt. A lot of people don't want to deal with that. And the reason is when the light gets turned on, you see your sin. I mean, here's the thing as a Christian when you're following Jesus and the lights get turned on, you start, to see, you start to see your frailty. You start to see that, that, that life is, is so fast. It moves so quickly. You, you start to see that you are impatient, that you're not the greatest parent on the planet. You start to see that you're not even a great son or a grandson, that you're not basically even really a good friend. The lights get turned on. And oftentimes because we, we've, we've been in this culture that has told us that we're identified by our failures and our successes, we kind of keep Jesus, you know, just to the mudroom. But my friends, when you understand that your identity is in the I am, then all of those exposing of sin, all of the exposing of dirtiness, the, the reality is, is that Jesus will share with you as he did with this woman who was sleeping with a man that wasn't her husband. I love you no matter what, and I will heal you, and I will clean your house for you if you let me turn the light on. And one of the things that's really true about our particular culture in this particular time, it, I think it's actually good news, is that the culture recognizes that not everything's okay. <laughs> I mean, they, they realize it across the board. But the culture is constantly trying to find ways to fix what is wrong, a solution. What was the solution? Well, some would say we just, you know, we just gotta, we gotta vote the right people into office. The problem is our leaders, and if we just vote the right people, then we'll fix things. Others would say it's the right policies along with the right people. We need the right policies. If we get the right people, the right policies, we can fix these things. We, we elevate, we move deeper into our problem, and, and now, you know, what will fix the solution is we have to get rid of Trump, and we've got to get rid of Biden. Biden will fix everything. He is going to be the savior of the U.S. if we just vote these right people in, and then it continues to escalate, doesn't it? We just need the right vaccine. You just need to wear a mask. You just need to social distance. We can fix the problem with science. We're going to fix the problem. And the problem with that is, first of all, there is no perfect politician. There is no perfect person. There is no perfect procedure. There is no perfect anything. There is only one perfect God. And Jesus is sitting, sitting in this situation, and he's letting us know, you want to fix the world. You know there's a problem. Turn the light on. How do I fix it? How do I deal with it? Turn the light on. Turn on the gospel of Jesus. Show that he is the light of the world, that he is the hope of the world. More than any other time that we know of, at least in our history, people are responding out of fear. As we start to segue a little bit in a few moments into the bread of life, Jesus, as he was looking upon the multitude and before he fed them, he said he looked at those people with compassion. And the church has failed to a certain degree to do that. Maybe you have failed in it. Maybe I have failed in it. I'm not sure. I'm trying not to. But there are people who don't think like we think. There are people who, who are not grounded and rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things it says about the end times is that our, our testimony that we didn't love our life 
to the extent that we are willing to die, we are willing to give up our life, knowing that to die is gain, but to live is Christ, that, that death is not something we fear, death is not something that should motivate us, death is not something that should make us shake in our boots, death is the passing from this life into the better one. And that we're, we're here, we're here to share the good news that this life is temporary, this life is, is, is nothing, and what you have is people walking in the darkness, They can't see what we see. And the Lord wants to shine that light on. He wants the light to see that you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be filled with anxiety. The Bible, more than any other commandment in it, says, fear not. How can one not fear unless you know that you know that you know that you know that the gospel and the testimony of Jesus Christ is 100% true? That we don't have to fear. Light of salvation, light of sanctification. But then there's this this light that Jesus brings that shows true meaning to everything. Let me show you through another quote. It reads that he, speaking of Jesus, will be the light in which you see mountains and valleys and oceans and rivers and trees and animals and people. Nothing will be the same again when you have him as your light. Everything looks different in the light of Christ. Yes, even earthquakes. Tsunamis, suffering, and death. Until his light fills the earth as the waters cover the sea, until it banishes sin and sickness and pain and earthquakes to outer darkness. Until then, and even now, his light will help you bear the sorrows of darkness. It will be a soft glow to comfort you in your lonely room after a devastating loss. It will be a lamp on your troubled path. It will reveal the wise and loving face of God behind every frowning providence. It's a beautiful quote. Because what he's saying is two different things. One, that when you're in this walk with God, when we celebrate at Christmas time that the baby has come, that the lights have been turned on, and the light gets turned on in your soul, he's saying literally, literally everything that you experience in life visually, the mountains and the trees, the gaze of a little tiny baby in your arms becomes even more beautiful with Christ than without him. You can actually taste and see and feel and touch as if you're alive for the first time. That which is good, he's literally telling us, becomes even better. Imagine that. I mean, imagine that if if you are a a person who has been on the fringe of believing Jesus, that if you walk with Jesus, all the good things in your life become even better because Jesus makes them better. But then he's also saying that the light of the world is the only thing that makes sense of the suffering in the world. You know why the church has to be the hope of the world? You and I have the only answer to suffering and pain. You and I have the solution to why suffering and pain exists. You and I have the solution to how you work through suffering pain in this world. So Jesus says, I'm the light. Turn the light on. Remember, there's this beautiful place uh, where Jesus says, open up the door to your heart. Welcome me in in faith. Let the lights be turned on. And then he sits us down at the table and he shares with us, I am the bread of life. What are you hungry for? What do you long for? Because Jesus ultimately is going to share with us that that it's him that we should desire. Go to John chapter 6. Jump over there real quickly with me. John chapter 6, verse 26. 
Now, this is on the heels of Jesus feeding miraculously the 5,000. And after he feeds the 5,000, they continue to follow him. He tries to withdraw to a mountain to get away. And the people are still after him. And so he stops and he says this, truly, truly. I say to you that you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is saying, okay, this is the idea of following again. The, the, the theme's still connecting. You're not following now. He's saying, you're not following now because, because you want me. But rather, you're following me because you want, my, you want my, my loaves. You want what I give you. See, this is a dangerous uh, theological problem that we can run into, and, and we have to make sure our church and our studying doesn't fall into the same error. What's that error? It's the error of, of putting forth church in a way that you, out of your relationship with God, get God's stuff rather than just a God, right? I want, I want the joy of God. I want the peace of God. Now, those things aren't, aren't bad in and of themselves, but it's a problem if that's your goal. It's, it's, it's like wanting the Father's stuff and inheritance, but not the Father himself, right? Our, our ultimate healing comes from being in a relationship with Jesus and Jesus alone, everything else is just a bonus. He says, you're not following me because you want me. You're following me because of you ate your fill. He goes on, look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's interesting is a little bit later, those who won't believe in him, he runs away to the mountain. But he tells us here, I am the bread of life. Now, it's, I hate to do this, but I, I continually do it, and it probably will never go away. I know I have a tendency to talk about food often from the pulpit. But it's in the text this morning, so I have to, right? I like my food. There is no question about it. And I know you do too. Don't lie to me. I know you like your food. What's interesting about food is if you think about every really good positive memory you've ever had, I almost can guarantee you, you know the food you had with that memory. Uh, every, every holiday, my grandfather, um, he, ever since I was a kid, he, made a, he makes a bowl of clam dip. Do you know what clam dip is? It's the same stuff that manna was made out of. And it gets set out on the appetizer table before dinner. And it is, the way he makes it, it's just, and it's a, it's a treat for him to make it. It's a treat for me to eat it. And the thing is, is that my, he made two batches. This is the kind of stuff we have in our, in our family home this Thanksgiving. Two batches were made on Thanksgiving. My grandmother says, that's too much. That's too much. And everyone else is like, no, it isn't. It's, we need a third batch. You know, you take it home. And so here I am, I eat that clam dip, and I, I get, it's so addictive, but by the time the turkey comes along, I don't really want the turkey unless I can dip it in the clam dip. Um, no, I'm just kidding, I don't do that. That would be gross. That memory will be, will be with me forever. The memory of my grandfather making the meal, the memory of my, my family cooking the rest of the meal, the memory of eating, the memory of fellowshipping, the memory of community, those are memories that will last and echo into eternity. Jesus makes the statement, he says, I am the bread of life. What he's 
literally letting us know is that bread, water, good food, good drink, good fellowship, all exist to help us know what it's like to be satisfied in Jesus. You you know why Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner with families, for the most part, is a really beautiful thing because it, when it's done well, and I know it's not always done well. I know sometimes Christmas and, and holidays, just they, they're frustrating and they make you mad and you want to slap family instead of love family. But when it's done well, and we've all had that good meal, we've all been at a good wedding, we've all had good fellowship. What Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying this is a small taste of what it's really like in heaven. I mean, one of, the things, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is out of Revelations and, and some places in Isaiah where it talks about in heaven, there's good food, there's good dancing, there's good fellowship. People wonder, is heaven going to be just us singing to Jesus? No. Heaven's going to be like a wedding party. You ever been to a good wedding? Heaven's going to be like a wedding. It's going to be good food, good family, good laughs, good enjoyment. It's just going to all, all which are fulfilled in Jesus himself. Another quote. <clears throat> every, every honorable pleasure that we have in this world is designed by God to give us a faint taste of heaven and make us hunger for Christ. Every partial satisfaction in this life points to the perfect satisfaction in Jesus who made the world. The pleasures of warm bread should send our senses and our spirits to Christ as the bread of life. The pleasures of cold water when we're hot and thirsty should send our senses and our spirits to Christ as the living water. The pleasures of light, making all other natural beauties visible, should send our senses and our spirits to Christ as the true light of the world. See, Jesus says, turn the light on so that you can actually see what life is like. Eat of the bread so that you can be fully satisfied in me. The one thing about unbelief is unbelief is never satisfied. The one thing about Jesus is that you're always satisfied in him. When you allow Jesus to turn the lights on in your your heart and you allow Jesus to feed you with himself, when you finally allow God to the most intimate spaces of who you are and your own being, your own identity, when you allowed him to come in and remove the false identities that you've had for so long, that you're not lovable, that you're an addict, that you're a beat-up person that nobody cares for, whatever those things are, that you're not good enough, that Jesus come into the light of your life, let him come into the light of the world and change who you literally are. Allow him to give you new identity, that you are a child of God, that you are a saint, that you've been created with a purpose, that God desires not only to know you and be with you, but he wants to invite you into the work of his ministry that God desires more for you than you could ever think or imagine. You see, the worst thing that Jesus could have done with the 5,000, the worst thing he could do with you is feed your belly but not feed your soul. He wants to fill your heart, not just fill your stomach. That's, again, one of the reasons why we're gathered here and why we continue to provide online services. That Jesus would fill the soul because the worst thing that could happen for us the worst thing that could happen for us is to be safe from COVID and never know Jesus. The best thing that could happen to you is to get it, maybe pass on, but know him. The light has to stay on. 
The bread has to still be at the table. We've got to allow people to come and freely eat of the God of the universe who created us for his purpose. Amen? This Advent, may we feed on Jesus through prayer. May we feed through the word of God. May we make much of who Jesus is. May we live for his will. One of the things that we try to do with our kids, worship team, you can come start coming on up if you want. One of the things we do with our kids, <clears throat> we, um, we're kind of going through for, well, we went through the week, vacation week through um, Thanksgiving. We worked through the, uh, the Hobbit, the story of the Hobbit. And then at Christmas, we're going to work through the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And that, that whole, uh, the whole idea of the Hobbit, one of the, things, well, one of the things we do with our kids when I say make much of Jesus is we try to teach our kids that in every good story, and I think it was Tolkien who said this, in every good story, it's a good story because the gospel's in the story. And so when we, when we watch a movie or we read a book that's you know, not secular and the gospel isn't outright, we, we look for the undertones of the gospel. And so here we are, and we're in The Hobbit, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, this little hobbit is in this massive chamber of gold, and the dragon awakens. Right, and the, ja- the dragon, we're told, is just consumed with this gold. And then later, once the dragon is killed and the dwarfs move in, we see the king of the dwarves begins to, to become what they call in the book, he has dragon sickness, gold sickness. And he's been so blinded by the desire of the gold, so blinded by his riches that he can't even really see or truly love the people that he's always loved around him. And eventually, if you know the story, his, his, the light gets turned on, if you will. And he realizes that the gold is of little value compared to the precious friendships he has with his fellow dwarves. And then he lays his life down on the line. You see, there's a dragon sickness in our world. And it has blinded us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is faithful to keep letting that light shine. And then, my friends, our job for moving from this place out of these doors is to be moved with compassion for our brothers and sisters who are in the dark. Because when he says, I'm the light of the world, Jesus always makes it go a little step further, doesn't he? Because then he says, you are the light of the world. You're the ones that walks through the grocery store and you shine. You ever been in one of those situations where uh, you're talking to a stranger you just met, maybe at the airport or what have you, and all of a sudden about yeah, 10, 15, 20 minutes in the conversation, they go, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Are you? I am. And it's like you found a family member right there. You're connected with the reality that you're both sinners, that you're both in need of salvation, and you're connected by that, and you need no other connection. That's the only one you need. My friends, would you leave as the light of the world, providing the bread of life? Would you stand with me as we partake of communion, and we get ready to close and leave these four walls to be what the church is really supposed to be? Remember, Jesus comes. I think it's fitting as we're in the bread of life, the light of the world that Jesus is our bread. He literally is letting us know that we can't live 
by just nutrition and substance alone, that there has to be something transcendent, something bigger than us, and that is himself. We live by not bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and this reminds us of his body that was laid down on the line and took the punishment that we deserve. He was the propitiation for our sins, the wrath-bearing sacrifice. So, Lord, we thank you for doing what we could not do. In Jesus' name, we partake. And then Jesus did the other thing we couldn't do. He said no to sin every step of the way. And since he was the Son of God and he was God himself and he was pure and is righteous, his love and his blood were 100% pure. Not one drop of sin, not one iode of anything negative, just pure, holy, I am Yahweh. We're actually told in Scripture this weird image that the blood of Christ covers us. That we are covered in his blood. Meaning that, that we are righteous as he is righteous. That that is our identity. He sees us as beautiful saints connected with him. So Jesus, we thank you for your perfect blood shed on our behalf. God, you are so much better than we deserve. Thank you, Jesus. We partake of this juice now. In your name we pray. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Hope to see you next week.